Oh, we were off because last week we were supposed to have it and we didn't, so it's an honest mistake. But um, so that the kids can also enjoy the Lord's table, we're going to have them stay up here today. So thank you for reading that. And if you're with me now in 2 Thessalonians, this is the next prayer passage we have in our yearly uh, prayer emphasis throughout the year. If you've been following along with our our, our, our study, our, our Bible reading plan, you'll know that each Monday we pray through something for our church. And this is actually the next passage from the one we were doing in July. So in July we were at the end of chapter 2. Pastor Greg preached on chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And now I get to pick up in the very next verse in chapter 3, verse 1. Let's pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll look at this text together. God, thank you so much for uh, this opportunity to pray for each other this month of August to be praying these, uh, this passage for each other. I pray that you would sustain us with these prayers and build in us this kind of faith-filled life as, uh, as we move through the lives that you've given us this morning. I pray that you would give me wisdom as I explain this text, help us to submit ourselves to it as we hear it spoken. In Christ's name, amen. Well, kids, I'll tell you that there's something that I didn't know until I was a parent. Do you know that there are some secrets that you can't figure out until you're older? One of those secrets is just what it means for a dad, or I would suppose a mom, to be able to help you as a child. How many of you kids like it when you get to do stuff all by yourself? All right, some of you like, yeah, that's what I thought. All right, we got some honest folks, that's what I wanna see. Yes, sometimes it's nice to kind of do stuff all by yourself. And there's, a lot of times you get to an age where suddenly you start to hear that a lot. Maybe you have a younger brother or sister who are constantly saying that exact thing. No, I'll do it by myself, even when it's something you know they can't do by themselves, all right? They say, I'll turn on the sink by myself, and you say, you're only two feet tall. You can't reach the sink, but they're going to try, and they're going to climb up that thing and try to turn it on because we like to do stuff by ourselves. But you know what really helps your mom and dad, believe it or not, is when you turn to your mom or your dad and you say, dad or mom, will you help me with this? And there's something in your parents' heart that rises to that. And parents, you know what that's like. Or I would imagine grandparents, it only doubles or triples. I, I'm not sure if that's true or not. But where that's, that really is joy, joyful for you to experience. For a child or a grandchild to say, I need you. I need your help. Or maybe you see them struggling through life or struggling in some activity. And you want to step in, but you have to wait in a sense, don't you, at times as parents. Not only just to allow them to maybe fail, but also because... There's a point at which until they're ready for the help, you stepping in won't be a help, right? It'll only introduce conflict. But there becomes a point where you see in your child, or perhaps even as old as a teen, or in their 20s or 30s, they finally turn to you and say, hey, Dad, I, I could use a little help here. And you rise to that, don't you? There's a sense in which this text is really Paul encouraging us to turn to God like that. It's not just true of kids. All of us like to do stuff by ourselves. We like to be independent, and especially as Western Americans, we are kind of our own commander. We don't need anyone to help us. That's part of what kind of made us who we are as Americans, but there's a flavor of that that's really destructive in the Christian walk. This whole text is an encouragement to instead have a faith-filled perspective on life. So I've entitled it here, Prayers for the Faith-Filled Life. This kind of response, this general heart disposition towards God that I need you, is what Paul is trying to work into our hearts and ask even for himself. Paul's not just going to instruct us in this, he's going to demonstrate it for us, to show it exactly what it looks like in real life as we move through our lives. 
And I mentioned this is a continuation of the last text. And in July, Pastor Greg preached through 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 17. While I don't want to recap that entire thing, I did think it might be helpful to just remind ourselves of kind of some of the details of what he captured last time. First of all, you might remember that Paul's very close to these believers. He'd passed through their time during a time of real opposition. You might remember he was chased from town to town, and they heard the word. When they heard the word, they accepted it, even though they were only, he was only there for a very short moment of time. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he actually sent Timothy back to them because he said, I wanted to know how you were doing. I wanted to get a report on you because we love you, we care for you. And Paul was concerned about that. Pastor Greg may note that these books, in a sense, deal with one of the lies that they had been told and started to believe, both about Paul and about what he calls the day of the Lord. One thing that they believed was that Jesus had already come back. So people had stopped working. They'd stopped fulfilling their responsibilities. And instead, they became a burden to the community, to the church, because they said, if, if Christ is about to come back, then I'm not going to work anymore. So Paul offers a prayer in front of them as a way to both correct them and instruct them and also communicate his care for them. He had three basic ideas in that text that we've been praying this whole last month. The first is thanksgiving. He says, I'm not upset at you. God loves you. You have a special place in my heart. Then he moves on to encouragement where he says, I want you to stand firm, to be determined, to keep believing. Yes, keep believing what you've been taught. And then he has a request to establish their religious affections and to keep going on in the, the immovable work of Christ. And on the heels of that, he now turns to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, although I don't think he wrote a 3 at the top of the next chapter, but as he continues here, he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This appeal, this prayer for them, we're going to break down into three sections. First of all, verses 1 and 2, where he tells them simply this, pray for us. And he has a bridge in verse 3, and finally in verses 4 and 5, he has a command for them to obey the word of the Lord. Let's look first of all then at verses 1 and 2, where he says to pray for us. This is kind of the culmination of the letter. He starts with this word, you can see in verse 1, finally, brothers. This is a word that kind of hints at the fact that he's summing up everything he's been saying. It says, as a closing note, finally, he gives them one command. And it's simply this, to pray for their apostolic ministry. Pray for their ministry of the word to other people. The central command is plain and easy enough to understand, but I want to just break it down briefly for you so you can see exactly kind of some of the nuances here. He says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. The way he says this is he says, keep praying for us. Be praying for us. Make this a pattern in your life. We could say it like this, be praying continually. That would be a very honest translation of this. Be praying for us. Make this a pattern in your lives. So what an appropriate thing for us to be doing for each other this month, right? To be praying for each other in this way. There's a frequency then to this command. It's also very emphatic. He actually highlights this even in the word order. We could translate it like this. Finally, be praying continually, brothers, for us. Or maybe more colloquially in English, because that reads a little awkwardly, we could say, pray, brothers. Yes, pray for us. He underscores that as this is the real command, the need for them to be praying. He says this with some degree of urgency then. 
see a man who is under duress, even as he writes this, likely in Corinth, facing opposition. And so he's crying out, reaching out for them. We need your prayers, Paul says. And notice the object is Paul himself. Paul needed divine help for ministry. I don't know about you, but I've always kind of assumed that the Apostle Paul was untouchable. Growing up, I thought, he's the Apostle Paul. What can touch him? Shipwreck the guy, he pops out of the water, he keeps preaching. Snake jumps out, bites somebody, he's fine. Paul, you can't mess with the guy. But that's not Paul's own perspective. And this isn't the first time to this single church he's told them, pray for us. Chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, he says just this, brothers, pray for us. Ask God for us. Ask for help for us. This kind of submission to the will of God is what Paul is going to encourage us to do in a moment. But you can see how first he steps into the role himself and says, let me show you what it looks like to be dependent on God. Children, it's, it's like when you turn to your mom or your dad and you say, I need help. And Paul here is saying in front of all these believers, I need divine help. I need God's help. Do you tire of being at God's hand like that? That can be a frustrating position to always feel like you're you're in need. But God actually wants you there. Maybe you faced a particular string of challenges and you're just tired of needing help, whether it's physically from the outside, somebody coming in and helping you with some project or some medical emergency. You just want to stretch where you can kind of be on your own and do stuff by yourself. I do it myself. And yet Paul even here shows us, no, we we have to be in this constant pattern of prayer and submission to God. There's an old Puritan that says we should never tire of being like a child at our father's hand, saying, Dad, I need more. Dad, I need help. This heart position isn't just good because it provides us good things. God does turn like any father would who's good and gives us grace. But it's much more than that. It actually helps us. Our hearts need this kind of constant refrain, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Do not tire So Paul demonstrates this kind of need that faith brings upon him to have this kind of faith-filled turn towards God. Lord, I need you. You'll notice then also that he has a few consequences of this prayer. Look with me at verse 1 once again. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us. And then you'll notice it says, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. And, And maybe that's not super clear in English, but what he's saying is, in order that, for this reason, for this result, with this result in mind, or you might say with this purpose. In order that, and in order that, two times he says there's two things that will come as a result of your prayers. And you can see the faith-filled life already forecasting what's going to happen when God steps in, when the Father steps in to help. He says, first of all, that the word may run and be glorified. Our translation here says that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. The word is literally that it would sprint, that it would run, that it would jump out of the blocks, that as they speak, it would run ahead of them. It would have success, in other words, that it would be active and alive, like we're told in the book of Hebrews. And then that it would be honored. This word for honored that we see in verse 1, that it would, the word would speed ahead and be honored is the word for weightiness, that it would be glorified or shown to be weighty or be esteemed by others to say, the word of God has weight to it. It works. It's real. It's active. 
And in case we're wondering what this looks like, he actually offers them as an example. He says, as happened among you, this is what you did in response to the word. We spoke the word, just like we're speaking the word here in Corinth, and what you did was respond to it in such a way that the word ran ahead and was weighty among you. You responded in such a way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 gives us what this sounds like. Here's what he says to them in the first book he writes back to them. He says, and we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, I'm speaking, you're hearing, how would it look if the word ran ahead and was held as glorious? He says, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. In other words, there's a certain kind of listening that Paul's after. No matter what he does, no matter how eloquent he is in his speech, it requires a, a kind of position towards God's word to receive it in such a way that the word can sprint ahead and be active and alive in their hearts. That the word of God would be glorified or shown to be weighty. And it's this same response to receive the word as it's really the word of God. Now, this is not a natural response for us, is it? We don't naturally hear the word of God and immediately bow to it and, and listen to it like this, like it's the word of God. What are some alternatives to that kind of reception? Well, you can, of course, think about the outright rejection. Maybe you think about like King Ahaz in the Old Testament, how he hears the word of God and then says, I will not test the Lord. I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to obey you. I think that's probably less of a danger on our daily life. Instead, I think some of these other ones are where we tend to, to fall. Instead of rejection, we'll often critique the word of God. Like, let me decide if this is true or not for me. Maybe this is true generally, but for me, I'm not really sure. I sit above the word as a critic, and I decide, I don't really like that part. I'll push that out. I do like this part. I'll take this in. I don't know about you, but my experience in, uh, well, my, I'll start this way, Golden Corral. All right, what, what evokes, what kind of memories are, are brought up for you? For me, it's actually not the word Golden Corral. It's the word the milk jug. And you might say, what in the world is that about? Well, I had a grandma who loved the Golden Corral. But she called it the milk jug. I don't know why, but we always went to the milk jug with Grandma Ella. And we would go in there, and you know what it's like. You, you go in there, and you pick some of this, and you take some of that. And Megan and I were talking the other day how our kids have never experienced a true buffet. And we thought, that might be kind of fun to see what, what happens if we take them in on that. You, know? you always get way too much, right? And you leave a lot to the side. There's a way in which you can receive God's word like that, isn't it? You say, I like this. I'll take lots of God's love, but I, God doesn't get to tell me to do anything. That's, that's an alternative reception to what Paul's talking about here. Maybe you reject it or critique it, or maybe you selectively accept it, like Peter shrinking back from the Jews in Galatians. Yes, he'd, he'd received the gospel and believed it, but in these kind of social situations, he just skirted the line a bit. Maybe you start to accept it, eventually you reject it, like the stony ground of Jesus' parables, or the rich young ruler who wants to know what it takes to get eternal life and then goes away sad because he's unwilling to part with his God. There are lots of ways we can take in the Word of God, but what Paul wants is for both them and for him and for those he's speaking to to receive it in such a way that the Word is honored and shown to be weighty. What makes the difference to this kind of accepting? Well, isn't it the work of God in our hearts? Of course, there's the prerequisites of understanding the text. That's why Philip asks the Ethiopian eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? Of course, we need to study the Word of God like First. Timothy, or 2 Timothy 2.15 says, to study the Word of God, to show yourself approved. But ultimately, isn't it the work of the Spirit of God, who takes the Word of God and plants it like a seed in our hearts and causes growth? 
This is why Paul is so intent, emphasizes so much the need for prayer when it comes to his ministry. Because Paul knows no matter what he does, no matter how he speaks, no matter how accurately he lives out in front of them, like he talks about in 1 Thessalonians, what they ultimately need is God to do a work in their hearts. Could it be that you as a parent today are discouraged because of this very thing? God is your witness. You've done your best. Yes, you've made mistakes, but you've tried to live the word out faithfully. You've tried to teach the word faithfully, and yet you sit at night with your spouse discouraged because it's not landing. There's no visible change. Maybe that your child is not in your home anymore, but for a long time now has been distant from you. No matter what you try to do to reach out, no matter what words you say, no matter how eloquent you are, no matter how careful you are, everything offends. Everything drives a wedge between you. This is the kind of reception that Paul is saying he doesn't want. What he needs, though, is God to do a work in them. You notice what Paul isn't saying is, what I need is just to say it in a better way or to argue a little bit better or to be a little bit more intelligent. Yes, all the things, of course, would have helped Paul, I'm sure. I'm sure he would have said, I wish I would have chosen different words or I do need God's help to be wise in how I speak. But if you boil all of his needs down and say, Paul, you get one, he says this, God needs to do a work in their hearts. Maybe the missing ingredient for you in your ministry to your own family members is this very thing. Could it be that you've gone about this with God in your words, but not in your thoughts? You've been godless in the way you've attacked, you've tried to instruct your children, the way you've tried to draw back others in your ministry. It is a sad thing to see all the actions of ministry going right, but none of the power. Paul says that what we need is the word of God to be planted by the Spirit of God. What we need is God to do a work, and so he says, pray for us. He says, pray that the word would run and be honored, as happened among you. And verse 2 gives us the second reason, the second purpose, the second result of this prayer, this command, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. This is most likely talking about Acts, what happens in Acts 18, verse 12, where he talks about these people who had attacked him in the, in the place where he's writing this from. It says, in, uh, in that section, that the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. You'll notice that he says here, the way our translation reads, deliver from wicked and evil men. It's actually, there's a the before those. It's the wicked and evil men. He has a particular group of people in mind. And this is how we should be praying, not just for Paul, but for each other as well. We face all kinds of opposition. Maybe it's just from friends or from coworkers. It could be from just the culture that's always instructing us, or maybe even from your own family that is constantly trying to pull you away from the things of Christ. We face all these kinds of oppositions, and so Paul says, we need help. And then he says, not all have, in the end of verse 2, not all have faith. Or, again, there's an actual... Uh, there's an actual the there. Not all have the faith. Likely, what he's saying is they don't all accept, they don't all bow to the teaching of Christ. They're not bowing to this. Now, the way he says this, it sounds almost like people talk about faith colloquially, doesn't it? Maybe you've talked to somebody to say, well, I just don't have that kind of faith that you have. I wish I did, but I don't. That's not what faith means in the New Testament. It's not something that comes and goes at will, and some people have it and some people don't. No, faith is about an object, a, a, a constant of truth that you either rest in or you don't. 
This kind of faith points to objective faith, not some personal subjective religious opinion. What he's saying is people have rejected what God says. That's what he's saying. Not all accept what God says. Not all have the faith. Not all believe, rest in what God has said. So if you don't have faith, don't look inward to yourself and say, what I need is just more faith. Look to the Word. Like Romans tells us, faith comes from hearing and hearing the Word of God in particular. So this first section, verses 1 and 2, Paul is essentially demonstrating what it looks like to be dependent on God like a child to a parent. God, I need you. Even for these things that he's honed in his own life and ministry, Paul says, I need you. Now, throughout the years I've had an opportunity to pastor people, I found that there are two things that are particularly dangerous, dangerous when I see in people. And they're things that we typically think of as good things. And I mean they're dangerous only in the sense that they can be liabilities. The two things are experience and education. Now you might say, well, what? Why is that? Because those two things breed in us the opposite of what Paul demonstrates here. Those of us with lots of experience, we don't tend to pray and say, God, I really need your help to deliver this lesson to these children. Because we've done it a thousand times. Those of us with lots of education say, I know what this says. I can move ahead without any dependence at all on God. Those two things can be great weapons in the hands of God, can't they? Somebody with a lot of experience or somebody with a lot of education, but only if they come to God like this. God, I'm dependent on you entirely. So pray, brothers. Pray for us. This needs to be our own perspective, not only for ourselves, but for this month for each other that God would breathe this kind of attitude in us, that we are a church who is constantly reaching up to God and saying, God, you have to do the work. Verse 3 I'm calling the bridge because I think Paul is, in a sense, kind of capping up what he said and applying it to himself and also turning his eye ahead to them. As he says in verse 3, but, here this contrast word, the Lord is faithful. This word itself just has this idea of continuing the thought, and the Lord is faithful. He will help us. He will do this. And he has this contrast as he compares their not having faith with God's faithfulness. It's actually the same word, just a different, uh, different way of using it. He says, not all have the faith, faithful is the Lord. That's how it reads. Not all have the faith, faithful is the Lord. God is faithful. Even if people reject what he said, God is faithful. He's the same. He's trustworthy. You can rest on him. God also has care for us. He personally cares for us. And here he starts to turn his attention away from his own ministry, now to the believers he's writing to. He says in verse 3, The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. He says God personally cares for you. What you need is to be strengthened with divine strength. The same word he uses in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 2, when he says that he sent Timothy to, to make sure that they were okay and to establish their faith. This word establish is this word to strengthen to, to bring strength to them. This is what they need. Not only did Paul face opposition when he was there in Thessalonica, but they're still facing this opposition. He says, I know you also have opposition you're facing. I'm facing opposition. That's why I'm asking for help. But so are you. And what we need is strength from God. The ability to stay under this, to be established, to be fixed. And what you need is to be guarded. This word for guard is like the word that is used of a century, looking over and protecting other people, and he says, God needs to do this for you. This is one of the reasons why God is so intent on communicating his care for us, his intercessory care for us. 
Cast your eyes back to the final days of Christ, where he turns to Peter and he says, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This is what he's saying. And then when your faith doesn't fail, do you remember what Jesus says? Then you can turn again and strengthen your brothers. And when you have turned again, you can strengthen them. This is exactly what Paul is demonstrating for us. We need God's garden, his, his, his guiding, his garden. Romans 8 talks about the Spirit of God doing just this for us. Hebrews 7 describes Jesus as the one who constantly lives to intercede for us. We need God's care and guidance for us throughout our life, and this is what he prays for. Finally, he mentions that this is all against the evil one, likely talking about Satan himself. And this is a reminder to all of us that what, what Paul is exposing here is kind of the underbelly of this opposition. Yes, they faced opposition physically. Paul himself was kicked out of the city. They chased him down to Berea. Yes, these people, these believers themselves, had been beaten for the cause of Christ, but that's the surface. What's underneath that opposition is the evil one himself. Or like he says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, Paul says this, ultimately behind all this opposition we see is spiritual warfare. You're not just facing physical enemies you can see. Satan himself is behind this. This is why we need divine strength. This is why we need divine guidance and, and protection from God himself. You can see why Paul is so intent on asking for help. This isn't just something he can beat a man with wits. This isn't something that if he just says the right words, they'll bow to it. Satan has blinded their eyes. Satan is behind the opposition he faces and these people face. So what they need is a power greater than themselves and much greater than Satan himself. What they need is the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, to rise to their cause. And so he says, God is faithful. You can trust him. As we pray for each other this month, this is the overwhelming nature of our prayers for each other. It should be. This kind of encouragement, you can trust them. You can put your rest and trust and faith in God. Finally here, he encourages us to obey the word. Verses 4 and 5, he turns and then, a very Paul-like way, he both commands them and also undergirds their strength and expresses his own faith in the Lord. He says in verses 4 and 5, And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things we command. You can see behind that the power of the apostle here is he's saying, I'm confident you are already doing what we've commanded and you will continue to do it, which is another way of saying, do what we told you to do and keep doing it. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. I phrase this like this, God can help you obey him. Because I don't think it's just Paul using sleight of hand here to say, I'm confident you'll keep doing what we're saying as a way of kind of saying, do what we're saying. He's also really saying he's confident in the Lord. God can help you do this. There's a sense in which you could say, okay, Paul, you've just said that we are up against the evil one himself. What chance do we have? And Paul says, I'm confident in God that you can and will obey what we've said. He has, has confidence, he says like this, we can rely on God's work in one another. And that's true for us. As you look amongst each other, don't we all have these ups and downs in the Christian life, but 
there's one thing that's stable and secure. It's not our own activities. It's not our own obedience. It's God's faithfulness to us. So we can have this confidence towards each other. I'm confident God will keep working on them. God will mature them. God will grow them. That gives us patience with each other. It gives us encouragement towards each other to, to be a part of God's work in one another. He talks about this command. Likely what he means is the commands in these letters, in First and Second Thessalonians, these commands, these apostolic instructions from the Lord. And some of those start in verse 6. This is some of the lies he's trying to counter. Like verse 6 says, now we command you, brothers. All right, he, Now he turns to them. I'm confident you're going to do what we're going to say. Two verses later, now we command you. Listen up. These commands, these apostolic instructions from the Lord are for our good, but what we need is God's help. And you can see even in the instruction here, even as he is telling them to obey him and expressing confidence in the Lord, he is saying that this is possible only in the Lord. Or again, like I phrased it here, God can help you obey him. He really can. There's this kind of defeatist attitude sometimes we can pick up in the Christian life. There's a podcast I've listened to some on and off called Ask Pastor John. Maybe some of you have heard that before as well. Pastor John Piper, who long pastored in, the, in uh, Minnesota, and he has a thing where people can ask questions and he answers them the best he can. I don't remember how long ago, maybe six or eight months ago, a, a man wrote in and he described his own failures in the area of purity. And he described it like he had no hope at all. He was so discouraged, he described his failures over and over again and how he even hesitated to try again because there was no hope. And then he asked, what should I do in this moment? This is the kind of thing that sin can do to us, that the evil one can do to us. It can get us in the spot where we say there is no hope. In that episode, he, Pastor John did exactly what Paul does here. He says, God can help you. He can. Satan is no match for his power. You can imagine the picture in your mind, the first chapters of Job, where Satan himself has to come to God and say, what can I do to Job? And God gets to decide. God's in complete control over that situation. Like Paul will say elsewhere, there is no temptation that you experience that is not common to man, but God is faithful. He will provide a way of escape. And in this confidence that he expresses in this Lord, this, this, this surety in God's work, Yes, he's commanding them, do what I'm telling you and keep doing it. But he's also commanding them to approach that obedience with this kind of perspective. Here's what happens if you take God out of the obedience equation. If you just say, God said this, I'm going to go do it. There's only two possibilities. One is you don't do it and you're a failure. The other is you assume that you've done it perfectly and now you're arrogant and probably haven't succeeded in the first place. It sets you up for failure either way. And either way, what it does is it distances you from God. But instead, what Paul is saying is, as you're obeying, I want you to remember that it's the Lord who's doing this in you. And what does that do? It breeds in us the kind of thing we see in Revelation where the people take their crowns, they throw it down before the Lamb, and they say, you're the worthy one. In other words, obedience without God as part of that picture breeds in you arrogance. It breeds in you arrogance. Obedience, while being dependent on the Lord, however, breeds in you joy and gratitude. God, you did this in me. This is what Paul is encouraging, even as he encourages them to obey his words. God can help you obey him. 
We don't have to be defeatists. No matter if we face Satan himself, God can. God will. God is faithful. So finally here, God can help you focus on his work. I think this perhaps is the harder thing for us to get to. Because especially when we face the kind of oppositions that Paul has hinted at in this section and experienced together with these Christians. What we often want to do is to buckle down on our own effort. Paul's not going to discourage that. What he's going to do is empower that. And he empowers it by getting us not to look inside ourselves, but to look at God himself. This perhaps seems counterintuitive to us. You say to someone, you need to obey what we said. And what you expect them to say next is, so pick up your, you know, guard up your loins, run ahead, do what And that's not what he does. It's not a, a, a chant. It's not some grand speech before a battle. He says, take your eyes and look at God's work. Verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This word may is a plead to the Lord. This is a prayer itself. He says, may the Lord do this. You need God to do this for you. You can see how this whole prayer is just him constantly saying, we need the Lord. We need the Lord. May the Lord do this. He says, may the Lord direct you. This word is actually the word to make something straight to remove obstacles, to have a singular focus. He says, may God do this. And what does he want to be made straight? What does he want? What area of life does he want no obstacles in? Well, it's the heart. It's, it's who you are. And he says this, that he wants us to focus, to direct our hearts with a singular attention to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. What I'm calling here is simply the whole focus on God's work. Now, there is a question here. Is this talking about the love of God for us, the love, the steadfastness of Christ toward us, that God is always the same, or is it saying the love of God in this way, that we should love God? Have your whole heart on this, that you love God, and that you're steadfast like Christ. You can actually take this either way grammatically, but I think in context here, it's clear to me that he's saying, you look at Christ, and then there's a resulting response. Then yes, you respond to that love with love. And yes, you respond to that steadfastness with your own sturdiness and strong and strength in response to Christ's. There's this kind of first and second response then. The first response is to fix your eyes on Christ, to fix your eyes on the love of God, to let that fill your heart and mind. And then to respond, like he said, obey what we told you. But that order is important, is it not? It's God's work for us and then God's work in us and through us. Obey the word of God. I want to encourage you here then to pray for each other as we close here with some closing applications of how we can use this text to pray for each other this month. First of all, I'd encourage you to pray for gospel advance. The gospel ministry we all have. Now, Some of you say, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not in the gospel ministry in any way, but you are God's ambassadors. You are God's tools. And he scattered you all over this area in places that people who hold the official role of pastor will never touch. But God has put you there next to your neighbors. God has put you there at that particular cubicle. God has put you there with those little ones. Wherever God has directed you, he's given you the opportunity to speak his word. And what you need is for people to hear that word and to receive it. So pray for gospel advance. I'd encourage you then to Pick up this prayer for each other. As you look around this room, as you look to the other men and women in this church to say, 
Now, what particular opportunity did they have that I don't have? I'm going to pray that as they speak the word, which is in itself a request, would they speak the word with boldness? Would you let people accept it? Not as just their word, but as the word of God. For the word's sake, bravery, speaking out his word. You'll remember that in that second verse, he talked about the opposition they might face. And so we too can pray for each other this way. As people have the opportunity to speak the word, help them to resist the opposition. Would you protect them? Would you guard them? From anyone who would push back against them, help them to be strong in the face of opposition. Pray for each other as we speak the gospel that we would advance and not retreat. That we would respond to opposition by turning upwards not by turning behind and running. Pray for gospel advance in our particular situations. As you have a chance to interact with your friends here, you'll know that some of them have grandkids that they've long wanted to speak the gospel to and just don't know how to. This month may be the month, and your prayers may be part of that. To Pray this way for each other. Give them an opportunity to speak the word, and may it run. Secondly, let me encourage you to pray for God's continued care for them. Now, this kind of has its dual purpose like Paul had for us, both that they would, they would know their need for it, God, I need your help, that they wouldn't arrogantly push ahead as if God didn't exist, but also that God would continue to act for them, that God would express or give them strength, undergird them with strength, and that he would guard them from Satan's influence. Even to pray that way that they face not just physical opposition, but opposition from Satan himself. This is much more than just what we can see. So pray for each other in this way, that they, we would have strength and be protected from Satan. And finally, would you pray for faith-filled obedience? And those words are important, faith-filled and obedience. Yes, Paul is instructing them to obey him. But he's doing it in such a way that it turns their eyes not inward to their own efforts, to their own abilities, but upward to God. I have confidence in the Lord that you will obey what we've commanded you to do. And as you pray for this, would you look for God's work in others? Those of you who have taken part of the prayer partnership program, you, you have somebody very specific to see. This month, use this as an opportunity not just to ask for them, in prayer, to obey the Lord, but then to look for it, to anticipate it, to see it, perhaps even to call it out to them, but certainly to thank the Lord for it. I've seen you do some things in their hearts this, this month. Pray that they themselves would warmly receive the word of the Lord, that they would receive it, and upon receiving it, that they would do exactly what Paul had described. They would honor the word. Pray for each other that we would have a heart full of God's work toward us, and then an appropriate response towards God, one of love and of steadfastness, of faith, of trust in what he's done. This is the kind of spirit God wants to grow in us. At the beginning, I described that kind of picture of a child reaching up to his father, reaching up to his mother and saying, I need help. This is what God wants to breed in us above everything else. Not intellectual people who know all the right answers. Not even people who, upon every action, always choose the perfect thing, but people who fundamentally are humble towards the Lord. Isaiah 
says in Isaiah chapter 62 that the Lord looks to those who are humble and contrite of heart. God will not be impressed with our programs. He will not be impressed with our Bible reading schedules. God is not turning to those who have all the accolades of experience or those who have the most PhDs. That's not the churches he turns to. What God is looking for is people who are humble, people who don't tire at saying, I need you, I need you, I need you, I need you. Could it be that this morning God has put you in some situations where you've had to say that a lot, very frequently, and you're tired of it? Let me encourage you to double down on it. We have to, if we're going to move ahead as a church in this area, what we need, first of all, is not more knowledge or not better morals. What we need, first of all, is not more intellect or more education. What we need, first of all, is a heart attitude towards the Lord that says, God, I need you. This is our month's opportunity to pray this for each other. I think I would breed in us this kind of humility. May God be honored as we do that in the month of August. Let's pray, and uh, like I mentioned, we will observe the Lord's table here in just a few moments. It usually takes maybe 15 minutes, something like that. And After I'm done praying, Nathan will come and lead us in a congregational hymn. And when he does that, if you did not make plans for that today, you're welcome to slip out um, and uh, head out the back. And then after that, we'll observe the Lord's table together. Just a brief reminder for all those helping in Backyard Bible Club, right after the Lord's table, we'll meet up here very briefly for just maybe 10 minutes or so to make sure we're ready for this week. All right, let's pray, and then I'll invite Nathan up. God, this kind of spirit towards you is, is a hard one to muster. It's not something you can do through effort. What it really takes is the Spirit of God taking words like these and pressing them down into our hearts. What it takes is us surrendering to what you've said and not resisting it. What it takes is us be, being willing to receive things from your hand that we would not prefer whether it's some struggle physically, whether it's uh, opposition that we face at work or at home, what it often takes is hardship for us to finally break like a child has to break and say, God, I need your help. So, Lord, breed in us the spirit of humility and dependence for your sake so that the word of God may run in this valley that its effect would be that people would view it as weighty and glorious. And help us to be chief in this kind of spirit of humility and submission. We ask in Christ's name.